Hello and welcome to this Energy Roundtable live stream. I am very, very excited to introduce you to our special guest today. What we're going to be focused on really today is sort of the future of energy development in America and how do we position the great state of North Dakota to be a global leader in that energy development. So joining us today, we've got Congressman Kelly Armstrong. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've got Ron Ness, the president of the North Dakota Petroleum Council. Ron, welcome. Great to be here. Also, we've got Charlie Gorecki. He is the CEO of the EERC, Energy and Environmental Resource Center. So, uh, Charlie, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. And James Lehman as well. He's the new commissioner, commerce commissioner, I should say, of the great state of North Dakota, as well as the chairman of Empower ND. So we're going to break all this down today. And uh, for Charlie and James, to both of you, I know you guys have both served our nation as well. So thank you for our service. And Ron, I, did you serve Ron as well? Because I don't want to leave anybody out, but I just wanted to acknowledge them for doing that. All right, I, I have not either. So let's jump in, guys. Um, here's what I want to start is this, is the future of energy development and how to position North Dakota uh, to really lead in this arena. And I want to say in this context is this, is that Chevron recently says, hey, uh, we may not be an oil first company in 2040. You've got the CEO of BP suggesting that oil demand may have peaked in 2019. Um, he goes, we've been an oil company for 112 years. This is a moment we've got to reinvent the company. He goes on to say society as well as our employees, they want us to change, they need us to change. He's obviously talking about clean energy. So Congressman Armstrong, you're on the Energy and Commerce Committee. We're gonna start with you. Just where do you see the future of energy development going, especially under this administration? And how do we position North Dakota to be a leader? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is regardless of what we do in the North Dakota oil patch, North Dakota coal country or wherever, the world's going to burn more of this in next year, whether we reduce uh, the economy in North Dakota or not. And that's just a fact. Um, we cannot legislate on emerging technology. That's Charlie's job. That is private industry's job to develop these programs. But I think we need to deal with this based in reality and whether it's oil, whether it's natural gas, Hydraulic fracturing has actually reduced carbon emissions worldwide, and we have to continue to tell that story. Uh, there are ways, right? More fuel efficient engines, uh, fuel efficient windows, carbon capture. There are all kinds of different things we can do. But the reality is, is we are going to be a fossil fuel based economy for the foreseeable future. My concern is that even though we know all of those things in 10 years from now, we're still going to be utilizing these products. What does it do to North Dakota businesses and North Dakota communities in the meantime through bad bank policies that simply will not work? And, and Ron, that's where I want to get your take on this. Uh, there was a piece that came out today, a new study where China now is going to make a 6.4, yes with a T, trillion dollar energy transition. They want to transition and transform their energy to be energy independent. There's a novel idea, but also be you know, net zero emissions by say 2050, 2060. I know right now we export oil to China and whatnot. Um, so what's the future of oil under this current administration? And when you see that kind of news coming out of China? Well, Chris, I, I think the, uh, you know, we have to look at certainly what consumers want and consumers demand. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, what's the, what's the political science component of it? What's the reality science and the science itself? And then what can we do in North Dakota? And I think, uh, this legislative session, you're probably seeing more discussions and more reactions on a number of the folks on this call today, uh, Charlie and the Commerce and, and the Empower Commission and others, looking at a way, how can North Dakota elevate itself 
How could we make a, a cleaner ton of coal? How can we make a cleaner barrel of Bach and oil? How can we improve our wind energy efficiency, make our ethanol, uh, the preferred ethanol component in the United States? We're in a point in North Dakota where we have the opportunity to do those things. We have investments through the Legacy Fund, a lot of legislation trending that direction. And it's not just about what, what certainly we're capable of doing, but what's the future hold for technology and better ways to invest in order to make North Dakota satisfy that demand curve of a cleaner energy source in the, in the future. And that doesn't have to be what we consider today a, a renewably clean, because I think at any point when you scale up those technologies, you begin to run into issues like we saw in Texas. Uh, what we're gonna see in terms of just land use on, on scalability of wind, scalability of solar. Those are big challenges that those industries have to face Meanwhile, we can't leave 800 years of coal in the ground forever in North Dakota. We can't leave one of the top 10 oil fields in the history of the world in the Bakken undercapitalized and underdeveloped. So those are great opportunities for us as a state. And we need to we need to look ahead. Uh, but certainly oil and coal and, and all of our energy resources are needed and critical. So Charlie and James, I'm going to bring you here in a moment. I've, obviously, I wanted to do this roundtable for our audience to be able to ask questions and things of that nature. And Ron alluded to how do we do this in a clean way? So. Charlie and James, we'll get to that in one second. I guess for you, Congressman Armstrong, a gentleman on YouTube is saying, hey, Congressman Armstrong, do you see reducing costs as a key to North Dakota producers in 2021? And I want to add to that, Congressman, what's interesting is that you see oil starting to go back up into the 60s, and yet there's only 15 rigs that are doing anything right now in the state of North Dakota. Yeah, so I will just say, you know, the efficiencies that we created in the industry in 2015 in the last slowdown really kind of we're we're about as lean and mean as we can get right now i mean there's always emerging technology and reduction of cost but chris i'll just be honest with you i think the cost particularly for north dakota and the transportation discount um we're worried about it going the other way uh you, you're gonna shut down keystone xl you're gonna have a fight on dapple we're dealing with all of these different issues we have to make sure that not only are we competitive as the single best energy source and to be honest, the best shale oil in the country. Uh, but we have to be able to compete against other shale plays as well. So, uh, you know, there's only so much lower you can bring costs. And we've done a really good job of reducing those over the last 10 years. I'm more worried about whether or not we're going to be able to compete in a global marketplace, given some of the transportation challenges we continue to face. And those are all coming from DC. They're not coming from North Dakota. <laughs> I was going to say, not just the transportation, but the regulations and all those other things. So, James, let's go to you for a moment, if you don't mind. And just um, I think some people may have heard of Empower ND, but now as the Commerce Commissioner, you're also the chairman of Empower ND. If you can give people an idea, sort of a, a big picture of what that is exactly, how it fits into positioning North Dakota to be a global leader in energy development. Um, and then how do we produce cleaner energy here? Well, thanks for having me, Chris, on the show. Um, so Empowered ND was created by then Governor Hoven and the legislature to basically provide an industry-led um, policy advisory group to the state legislature, as well as to um, to some degree uh, to inform sort of federal efforts. And so Empowered ND is effectively an all-of-the-above energy approach where the petroleum industry, renewables, uh, gas, lignite, et cetera, everybody gets together and comes up with solutions uh, for, from a policy-driven perspective to make this state uh, as energy uh, growth postured as possible. Um, as far as the efficiency component is concerned, what's really unique about, or about Empower ND uh, is more or less, uh, I'll piggyback off, off of Congressman Armstrong as well as uh, Mr. Ness in that 
Um, we're seeing trends. Uh, we're seeing a regulatory environment that doesn't look necessarily optimistic for us. But at the same time, we prefer a much more aggressive and innovative approach. And as Ron mentioned, uh, in this legislative session, we're looking at very uh, unique tools coupled with the input from industry in the Empower uh, Committee, or Commission, if you will, so that we can make the appropriate investments so that we can grow the energy pie. Um, it's not a zero-sum game in North Dakota. And although we have what appears to be a very difficult situation, there are a lot of opportunities as well, given the agility, the quality of the crew we have, um, and where we can work with uh, our federal partners uh, in the coming months and years, uh, the fewer of these uh, transportation and regulatory issues we hope we're gonna have to worry about. So that's what Empower ND does. It informs policy, but also works with the legislature to develop the right tools uh, to propel various sectors within the energy industry forward. Good stuff. Some of these uh, emails, if they're getting a lot of emails, but James, uh, one person says here, hey, thank you for trying to make Western North Dakota's quality of life better. Uh, you work hard, so that's nice. And then Charlie, let's go to you, sir. Um, I'm gonna bring up a graphic real quick in a moment, but let our audience know that I had a chance to visit with Charlie last week. And then just maybe for all of you, I just wanna show you how, how amazing it is that North Dakota seems to many people to be sort of this hidden jewel. And yet the things that we are doing from technology and production and all these things to really lead in energy development. So Charlie, um, I'm gonna have you describe for people that may, may not be as familiar with the EERC as like myself should be. And then how do you see us creating more clean energy? Before I do that, I wanna make it easy for you because today there was a bipartisan bill introduced regarding uh, CO2 capture. They wanna put 4.9 billion with a B dollars uh, towards investing in that. So Charlie, you're up my friend. Thanks, Chris. So the EERC is a non-teaching branch of the University of North Dakota, and we're focused on uh, solving those challenges that uh, energy and environment has, uh, and we're doing that through technology. Uh, North Dakota is a, an energy powerhouse. So we we're the number two producer of oil. We have 800 year supply of, of coal. We have uh, abundant um, renewables that are going on in the state. And, and one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of people about recently is especially with things that have happened in Texas and other places is that we don't have to choose in North Dakota between clean and reliable. We have that ability here with a technology development to be able to produce our oil and our coal <clears throat> and do it in a carbon free way. So things like carbon capture, utilization and storage, that thing you just uh, popped up, an infrastructure bill, we've been working on that technology for a couple of decades now and we're on the verge of commercial viability. And I think we'll see uh, several projects coming online shortly where we're taking carbon dioxide off of the ethanol plants or carbon dioxide off of coal plants, storing it in the subsurface. Uh, so we're producing carbon-free electrons or carbon-free ethanol, or maybe even taking that carbon dioxide to the Bakken and producing a lower carbon barrel of oil at the same time as we're producing uh, low carbon electrons to our grid. So we don't have to choose here. We can do, we can have that all of the above energy and produce reliable power that is uh, carbon-free. So for the people post, posting comments and questions, we'll get to those in a moment. Continue to please uh, post those. I guess, Charlie, the question is you talked about, hey, we're close when it comes to the, you know, utilizing the carbon capture and whatnot. We had Senator Hovind on recently. He said between maybe 12 to 24 months. Is that a fair time frame? What do you, what, do you, what say you? Yeah, I believe that we're going to see our first commercial projects uh, coming online 12 to 24 months. That's about appropriate or about accurate. Uh, some of the low-hanging fruit, the easy to capture from the ethanol facilities, and then maybe a little bit behind that, um, 
we're hopeful to see Mencota move forward with uh, Project Tundra, where they would be capturing carbon dioxide off of the Milton R. Young power plant in your center, North Dakota, and then producing that carbon-free electron uh, um, after that uh, carbon capture is in place. It'll take a few years for that carbon capture plant to be built uh, once it's the final investment decision has been made. But we have the technology to do that today. It's all about having the right policy uh, and framework in place to be able to produce that power and have it compete into the marketplace. On so if one of you or all of you can walk me through this, please, what, what's the marketplace look like for carbon? I mean, it just seems like it's going to be an extremely profitable industry. Am I wrong or what, what is that marketplace going to look like? Congressman Armstrong, you want to take that? I think I think the silence from four, well, three pretty smart people and me is we don't know. But <laughs> it, it, so let's back up a little bit. Reducing carbon is great. We need to do that. Whether and like I said, and we can do that. But we always should be a little careful of a government created construct that trades trades like a free market commodity. Uh, not the least. I, I mean, you just have to be careful about effectuating those policies right and that doesn't just that's not just the energy industry when you start talking about carbon banks and agriculture and you start doing this i want to tell you what really ends up happening with that large international companies deal yeah. with those things in a way that makes smaller businesses almost impossible to compete and the reason is is they're complicated compliance is different we deal with it when 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 a lot of my friends talk about being carbon neutral what they mean is they'll buy their offsets. <laughs> That's what they mean about being carbon neutral. And they're not honest about it. So you showed a thing with Chevron and BP and all of that, that doesn't actually affect the Bakken all that much because they're not producing the oil in the Bakken. I mean, they, they exist in the same world, but we're more interested in the North Dakota companies and the smaller mid-majors who have taken the risk and have come, and out, come out here. So if they want to get out of that field on offshore out of Indonesia and everything, we're great with that because we'll just produce more oil in the Bakken. But be a little careful about how, I, I mean, I just would caution anybody watching this, to be a little careful about a carbon market because there is no real world carbon market. That is an artificial government construct that really takes just a different form of regulation. Well, I guess that's what I mean by it seems like it's going to be pretty profitable when you're selling air. <laughs> so anybody else want to jump in on the carbon market before we get some viewer questions? Oh, I would agree, Chris. I, I think carbon market to me means a higher cost for the consumers. Uh, smaller operators at, at a competitive disadvantage, uh, those entities that can pass it along in the terms of their, their uh, full-scale uh, efforts, uh, owning from the well to the tank. Um, but uh, something that I think North Dakota producers, agriculture and oil and gas and energy producers uh, better fully understand the ramifications before we walk down that road. Ron, real quick, as you mentioned that, I mean, what's your take on the American Petroleum Institute potentially that they have, and I haven't seen it, but coming out for a carbon tax. Well, I, I think that's exactly uh, Congressman Armstrong's point. Uh, those are companies that have the ability to pass it on in a tax to, to us as consumers at the gas pump. It's a lot easier uh, to do that. As, a, as an independent oil producer, much like we have in the oil in the Bakken, uh, you don't have that ability. So you, you eat that and you're at a competitive disadvantage. So uh, for large integrated oil companies, it's easier just to to consume the costs and pass it on in the terms of uh, at the pump. 85, of the big five companies, Chris, 83 to 85% of their oil is produced outside of US shores. 
a carbon tax in the United States doesn't necessarily reflect, reflect or affect their global business in the same way it does where 100% of your business is in the Bakken. So if we're going to start talking about carbon taxes, you will have at least one guy in D.C. saying that's great, but it's going to be on your worldwide production and not just your U.S. production. Well, and I'm going to get to some of that in a moment, but I do want to get to some viewer comments here. Um, Tim Rasmussen, and maybe Congressman, you want to take this since you're an attorney, says several states have launched a lawsuit against the Biden admin demanding reinstatement of Keystone XL pipeline permit. How real is this? Does the suit have a chance? Uh, so it's a real suit. Uh, our attorney general has joined it. Everybody up and down the line has. Uh, the question is, and this is the question, and I think this is the hurdle they'll have to overcome, and I haven't I haven't read the briefs or anything yet, but the executive authority on the presidential permit is pretty tight, uh, whether it should be or shouldn't be. I mean, I've actually introduced a bill to get rid of it, but it'll be interesting. Um, I, I do think there is some some interesting issues as to how you can change the rules of the game after the game has been played. But the executive authority regarding the, I mean, there's nothing unique about the Keystone XL as compared to other pipelines. The unique was is, the uniqueness was because it crossed the Canadian border, the, this White House could uh, get rid of it with the stroke of a pen. So I hope they're successful. Um, it, it's, it's smart attorney generals that have had success prior. Uh, they had success on waters of the U.S. Uh, attorney General Sedgwick was a part of that. So if anybody can get, if anybody can make a go of it, it's them. So this again could be for all of you. If someone's got any inside track, I know that there's going to be a hearing on the Dakota Access Pipeline. I believe it's April 9th. Anybody got an inside beat on that? Is oil going to continue to flow through Dapple, or is it possibly not going to be flowing? Well, Chris, I'll take that one. And obviously, April 9th is an extremely important date for us. 570,000 barrels of, of American-made Bakken oil from North Dakota, uh, feeding the largest refining complex in, in the country, 70% of our refinery in the Louisiana Gulf Coast. Uh, absent Bakken oil going in that pipeline every day, that oil is going to come from Libya, Iraq, Iran, uh, unfriendly nations to our country. And what we are doing is we are enhancing their ability to produce and sell oil to America as opposed to uh, create jobs and economic activity. That pipeline is 92 feet beneath the bedrock there of, of the river south of Bismarck. There's absolutely no reason it can't continue to operate safely as it has for the past three and a half years. It's a super big deal. Uh, we are very concerned about it. And of course that oil's getting to market one way or another. So it's yeah. gonna go trucks and trains and every other way, uh, but not as safely or not do a good, better market like we have today and, and at, a, at a higher price. But hey, and if it goes that way, it's going to increase carbon emissions. So, uh, and, Warren, and Warren Buffett makes more money. But anyways, let's talk about this. Um, here's a question. And, and James and Charlie, if you guys want to jump in on this one, and I'll give some context after I read this as well. What's the future of ethanol? We've got two local plants, obviously the Thurlton plant and others. And then just for some context here, there was a big announcement um, from Senator Hoban's office regarding the green planes to build carbon capture pipeline for co2 storage in north dakota from like 40 ethanol plants i believe in iowa or at least around the midwest so james or charlie whoever wants to go first on that one please yeah i'll, I'll take that one uh so for north dakota north dakota we have the geology the, the same reason we have this wonderful bakken oil production play we have the sedimentary geology that stored oil and gas for millions of years we have geology that is suitable for carbon storage um, we have several ethanol facilities uh, that overlay that wonderful geology and they can take advantage of capturing the carbon dioxide right now and storing it in the subsurface. And what they're doing is taking advantage of low carbon fuels markets in the, particularly in the West Coast. 
so they'll be able to lower their carbon intensity by capturing that carbon. Um, things like Green Plains um, and uh, the Summit, uh, Summit Group that have talked about pooling those ethanol facilities and transporting that carbon dioxide to North Dakota for storage, uh, again, they'll be able to take advantage of those, those same uh, low carbon fuel markets. And we have the geology here in North Dakota where those states of Minnesota, Iowa, they don't have that geology that could allow them to do carbon storage. One of the other things that I want to I want to say um, about carbon uh, is it is treated like a commodity in North Dakota. And what I mean by that, if we'll just take the Bakken for a second. We produce someplace between three and four billion barrels of oil out of the Bakken, but that is a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of oil that is in the Bakken. Estimates are someplace in the hundred billion to maybe a trillion barrels of oil in the Bakken. We're producing that through primary production. The way that we get more oil out of the Bakken and other formations is by putting something back into the formation to give it that energy again. Carbon dioxide happens to be one of the best things that you can possibly inject to produce more oil. Uh, the challenge is capturing that carbon. We need the carbon. Um, our power plants produce uh, and our point sources in North Dakota produce about 30 million tons of carbon dioxide per year. Once we crack the code on using CO2 for Bakken EOR, We'll be able to use every single ton of that if it's available for CO2 enhanced oil recovery. Wow. That, that uh, the Summit Energy Group, if they're bringing in another 10 million tons of carbon dioxide, capturing some credits, looking at low carbon fuels, they again could take advantage of our geology, but also if, if the economics work out, that could go to the Bakken as well. So we could see that as a win-win for ethanol, win for North Dakota, win for oil production, uh, using, using that carbon as a commodity. James, do you want to piggyback on that at all, sir? Yeah, I, I will. Thank you. Um, so that, that was a good picture, sort of the, the, the long-term play there. But I, I'll add in the medium term and short term, uh, ethanol did effectively a pandemic pivot and was able to basically offset major sanitizer shortages uh, through the pandemic. And they continue to have sales channels open. Um, in addition to that, we've seen uh, market different or market uh, growth in some areas for dried distillers, grains, and other components that typically derive from from the ethanol industry. So as a result, in the in the midterm, we're looking at new markets that we can share with our, our ethanol producers so that they know, okay, here's the sort of the midterm bridge, if you will, to, to cover down on um, maybe some of the shortages caused by uh, the recent pandemic and the subsequent decline in demand. But uh, in the aggregate, we're all kind of heading in the same place, but it's, it's also good to note that they were able to pivot and transition unlike many industries were able to do during that um, during the, uh, the, the peak of the pandemic, if you will. And as a result, that agility demonstrates many facets, both in the midterm as well as the long-term, such as what Charlie talked about. Nice. Um, Ron, I think this one might be for you, but here's a question from Charlie Thompson. What are your thoughts about the future of produced water treatment and repurposing throughout the state? Uh, anyone want to take that? Sure, I think I can take that. And uh, Charlie's group at EERC has been working on this for a number of years. Uh, it's something that we probably see more prevalent in, in the Permian or, or other places across the world. Uh, one of the things that I, I look at in terms of House Bill 1452, which is a clean, sustainable energy authority, is some type of uh, large-scale commercialization demonstration projects that can help producers uh, get over the hump because this is one of those things. We've got a huge body of water flowing right through uh, the middle of the bucket in terms of Lake Sakakawea. We've had some success, of course, uh, getting a, a lot of water out of there. Uh, but a year like this where it's very dry, I think certainly uh, we're going to be challenged in terms of if we ramp up our rate count, we ramp up our, our completion crews. Uh, opportunities like this are out there, and it also helps lead us down that 
road of, of a cleaner Bakken barrel in the future. So a lot of potential thus far in the Bakken. We really haven't seen uh, the driving economic force or the opportunity behind it. Uh, a lot a lot of because we have scattered lands uh, across uh, a big area in North Dakota with uh, rugged terrain, water bodies. Uh, Western North Dakota is kind of a, a hodgepodge of areas of the Bakkets. Another question comes in from Mike. Uh, would increasing the frequency of pipeline inspection and enhancing compliance requirements be a cheaper and viable way to show the pipeline is a better option than truck rail transportation of oil? Congressman Armstrong or Ron, you want to take that? Well, I'll start with pipelines already the safest way to transport oil. Uh, it, it just simply is. Um, I think, unfortunately, our fights, like you can look at the Enbridge line in western Minnesota. That isn't about putting a new pipe in or a, a, a new uh, place. It's about replacing an old pipe with a good pipe. But there was a question earlier about technology and whether that's unmanned aircrafts or um, different things. We, I mean, we talk about thief hatches and all of those things. That technology is going to advance. It's always we Every single year we get cleaner and better at this. The problem is, is if we put compliances in, particularly at the federal level, that don't recognize where technology is. I mean, it, our, the, the guys doing this and the companies doing this want to do it as cleanly and safely as possible. They have a vested economic interest in it, not only in the current pipeline they have, but in being able to deal with landowners and the communities in which they do business in. So, yeah, we'll, we always need to get better. But what we can't do is put unrealistic expectations on it that make it either uneconomic or impossible to do. All right. So I'm going to throw this into this conversation here. And whoever wants to jump in first, please take it. Um, with some context. I mean, we've gotten so good at fracking now and, and developing uh, natural gas if we somewhat cannibalized our coal business. And I asked that from the standpoint is, what's the future of Coal Creek Station? Do we have any idea what's gonna happen with Coal Creek Station? Well, maybe I'll just give a, a, a little bit of what the EERC is doing right now at Coal Creek Station. Um, so we are, we have had our carbon capture unit, uh, which is a small, pilot plant scale carbon capturing. We've had that in um, Coal Creek Station stack and ca capturing a slipstream out so that anyone in the future, if it if it is uh, handed off from Great River Energy or sold to someone else, they'll be able to design a carbon capture unit off of Coal Creek Station. That's our most modern coal-fired power plant in North Dakota. Uh, we are we have the technology to capture that carbon dioxide if that's the uh, if that is the goal here. And so we're, we're preparing it for someone else to take on. James, you're the Commerce Commissioner. Um, I don't mean to put you on the, on the spot here. If you want to break some news, you got any inside scoop for us on what's happening? I, uh, I, I wish I could break some news for you. But what I can tell you is uh, over the last several years, actually, so it isn't even like it's accelerating now, uh, various folks from, from GRE, the, uh, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, as well as uh, multiple folks from Commerce, as well as the Empower Commission that are involved in this project, uh, have been highly adept at at basically looking at a number of options. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll say over the last several months, if not six months to a year, um, we've seen many viable proposals. And um, I'm personally bullish and optimistic about the future of Coal Creek. I know it looks like you know we're in 2021. It's it's on the sunset calendar, and we're basically you know less than a year out. But uh, I I wish I could break some news, but I but I can share that. Um, <laughs> there there are some positive developments and um to be frank i'm like i said optimistic and bullish thank you yeah. um Charles, go ahead you want to ask i'm going to jump in i would say that 
after we look at the Texas grid disaster uh, last month, uh, the reality is is that we have to make sure that the coal the coal industry is not disadvantaged in their ability to produce reliable, cheap, affordable, sustainable energy for us every single day, uh, not only in North Dakota but across the world. And you know, in North Dakota, we we haven't utilized a lot of natural gas for power generation at this point. Uh, but the reality is, uh, as a coal producer versus a wind producer today, the economics are just that much better running a wind a wind turbine farm than they are running a coal plant, which you can't run 24-7. And that has to be looked at in terms of reliable, sustainable energy. As as oil producers in North Dakota, we are huge consumers of electricity. We completely rely on electricity to run the pumps, run the compression stations, all the technology on well sites. That, that needs to be base load power that just like at your home, we need it every day in order to supply the rest of the energy to the to the country. So uh, big discussions going on at the legislature and certainly I uh, hope Congressman Armstrong and the congressionals uh, grasp the reality of, of the situation where we're headed. Yeah, and I think I would just, I mean, eventually what you need is a willing buyer and a willing seller, right? I mean, regardless of everything else you're dealing with from, from the government standpoint, our job, and I agree with the Texas grid, and I think we don't talk about the economics of energy production enough. You know, we talk a lot about renewables or we talk about a lot of different issues, but there are certain disadvantages outside of price that coal faces which Ron just uh, talked about is how you ramp up quickly. And I, I mean, they're, 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 they're just at a disadvantage in those places. But our job, and we're working with both Senator Kramer and Senator Hoven's office, is to ensure that if we get to a point where there is a buying or willing buyer and a willing seller, they don't run into a real federal regulatory hurdle that deals with that at the last minute. So we, I mean, you're never going to get me involved in a private business sale. I don't think that's that's necessarily the appropriate place. What we can do is make that as attractive to a potential buyer as possible by making sure they know they have the resources of our office to help them through that process. So James, this, if you want to jump in here as the Commerce Commissioner and, and Congressman Armstrong and other policies, because everyone talks obviously about the wind policies at a federal level and Ron just talked about, hey, it's it's much more economically viable right now to do wind than coal. Are there some policies you can do to help the coal industry? And James, are there specific things you would like to see happen for the coal here in North Dakota? Absolutely. Um, I, I would love to see um, a lot of great things happen. As Ron mentioned earlier, there there's 800 years worth of lignite in the ground. And lignite has a number of properties that I think we could leverage uh, to augment agriculture production. Uh, there are rare earth elements, for example, we'd like to take a hard look at, not to mention its primary use, which is effectively to power the nation. So um, one thing that Empower's engaged in, uh, and, and Ron cited uh, 1452 a couple times so far, that's a, that's a house bill effectively that will create a clean energy authority for the state of North Dakota and drop about $40 million into the initial investment. And one thing we're looking at doing uh, very shortly is taking that money plus what the uh, what private industry is invested in their conversion, uh, whether it's coal, whether it's gas, whether it's oil, you name it, and collectively identifying early wins that we could develop, not just from, um, from an innovation and entrepreneurship perspective, but something we can take back to Washington and help articulate that we all want clean energy, just like Congressman uh, Armstrong indicated, just like well, everybody wants clean energy. It's just our approach to getting there is a little bit different. Um, we believe in a much more innovative approach. They believe in a much more regulatory approach coming out of this new administration. So our hope is, as an Empower Commission, as a Department of Commerce and other state agencies, um, is to have a strategically aligned public-private partnership that articulates to our federal partners as well as private markets, uh, because we haven't really talked about that much. 
Uh, there is still sort of the $52 trillion gorilla in the room, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance. So if we want to access that private equity for capital intensive markets, such as Lignite, um, we're going to need to help the, uh, the Lignite industry eliminate those competitive disadvantages and barriers and put them on a playing field, which is fair. And to do that, I believe 1452, the strategic planning that the, uh, the Lignite Energy Council, as well as industry and the Empower Commission and other state agencies have done, have effectively positioned the state to prime that pump. So just like before, I'm, I'm leaning toward optimism, even though it looks like a very um, uh, heavily regulated current that we're up against. But at the same time, uh, we're a little bit ahead of that. And um, over the next several months, I, I think we're going to have the tools necessary to, to further uh, what I just talked about. James, do, do, do you want to drop that market number again? I think you said 53 trillion with a T, yes? Uh, 52 trillion is the- oh, okay. <laughs> uh, So, I mean, we're, what's a trillion, right? Uh, but, <laughs> but no, yeah, it's, it's, a serious, um, it's a serious trend in investing uh, that we need to get a handle on. And um, larger companies have ESG specialists uh, that are already engaged in preparing their companies to access those private equity markets uh, or debt, whatever the case is. And uh, the reality here is our mid-majors, as Congressman Armstrong referred to them as earlier, we want to position them as well as possible. And that's our job. It's to develop the playbook, if you will, to give them so that they can meet equity needs, they can navigate a very complex environment uh, regulatory-wise, and then also downstream for their customers um, also have that playbook, if you will, to help maybe offset some of the, uh, the misinformation that's happening in other states for, for their consumers. So um, we're, um, we're very aggressive in this space and uh, we're just very grateful for folks at the EERC, the, the Petroleum Council, and even our, our CODEL, as we call it, the Congressional Delegation, because they're helping us provide those resources um, to get this thing moving. So I want to give each of you a chance to kind of brag on the, all the great things you're doing for our state, our country, and really the world. So James, for you real quick, I know that you've got an RFP out can you talk about that publicly about this ESG situation or? Absolutely, uh, it, it's 100% public. So once 1452 becomes law and the Clean Energy Authority is established as well as the likely to be a $40 million fund, um, what, what we're doing at Commerce is basically hiring an, an ESG consultant, environmental, social and corporate governance consultant that could come here, immediately identify low hanging fruit that we could provide to industry so that as the new clean energy authority gets ready to convene sometime probably in the summer or early fall, they have basically um, uh, a jump start so that they're not starting from, um, from ground zero here. And so by, by providing information for those mid-majors, for those smaller firms, but also this new clean energy entity to say, hey, look, these are some low hanging fruit options that you should examine. Uh, we're not here to be prescriptive or tell them where to invest their money, you know, to invest this money. But it's, it'll be a decent guide to augment industry's perspective um, so that we're prepared to invest that money well. But as I mentioned earlier, um, as you, you know, surfaced a $4 billion investment or something that looks like it may be made soon uh, in terms of carbon capture, et cetera, we just want to be as well positioned as possible. Again, innovatively identify solutions to these problems. And whether it's with our counterparts in Washington, whether it's encouraging private investment from other places or state investments, that ESG consultant, the goal here is to have that playbook ready to go so that we're ready to rock and roll when it comes to nice. uh, the new clean energy authority. We've got 10 minutes left. I want to give Charlie and Ron a chance to brag about the great things they're doing. And then Congressman Armstrong will give you the last word. So Charlie, um, 
when you and I spoke, one of the things that really jumped out to me, and I want to create, ask you this way or bring it up this way, is the fact that right now China is looking at how they're quote unquote harvesting rare earth minerals because they want to stop the U.S. from producing F-35s. You've got truck manufacturers that can't get enough trucks manufactured because they're missing out on parts that we need you know, certain elements for. One of the things when you and I spoke, and this is some of the featured programs at the ERC, you said, Chris, what we're finding right now as we go out to Coal Creek Station or we're you know, harvesting coal is that we have the ability to extract rare earth elements. Can you talk more about that and how you see us positioning that globally here in North Dakota? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we have rare earth elements in our lignite coals. We've identified uh, concentrations that could be uh, economically viable to extract from our lignite coals. Actually, we can do that before we take the coal and burn it, or we can take it out of the ash. It's just a matter of technique. Um, so we have the ability in North Dakota, if we assess the, the overall resource of rare earth elements, and let's say a particular mine, uh, we could extract the rare earth elements. We could have an industrial park or an energy park, perhaps, uh, where we're creating products out of the coal as well, utilizing it to create uh, electrons, uh, capturing the carbon dioxide and sending it to the Bakken to produce a uh, lower carbon um, barrel of Bakken oil that we wouldn't otherwise be able to produce. We, we have those things, the technology here in, the, in uh, North Dakota and the researchers at the EERC partnered with industry that are already taking on these challenges. These are some of the things that we're working on at the EERC. So uh, everything from the rare earths, the, the carbon products, the uh, reliable, sustainable, low carbon energy, uh, we're doing it all at the EERC right now. It's, it's incredible what you guys are doing. So thank you for that. And Ron, uh, I want to have you just brag about what your industry is doing here for the great state of North Dakota. You guys released this on Tuesday, but I'm going to go over some of the numbers. So the oil extraction and production tax um, from 2008 to 2020 has produced $22 billion for North Dakota. It's just incredible. Uh, Bakken development, uh, 45% of all the taxes collected by the state. In the past five years, oil extraction production taxes are approximately 50% of all the state taxes, $1.3 billion for water projects, $6 billion for the legacy fund, $8.2 billion in communities and infrastructure. I mean, I know you can go on and on, but thank you for what you and your industry are doing. Well, Chris, I, I think this is why this discussion matters, right? We, we have to figure out how to do this. This is the economic base of North Dakota, agriculture and energy. It's what's brought... Uh, tens of thousands of young people here. It's what's going to keep my kids here. Uh, you know, why does this matter? 60,000 jobs uh, in 2019 was our report. Um, Cass County, uh, what's, what's, what's Cass County gained from this Bakken tax uh, revenue? $874 million back to Cass County. We've got a report here, every county in the state, uh, 22 billion in whole, but 60, almost 17% of all the non-farm jobs in North Dakota, oil and gas, 23% of all the wages in the state of North Dakota, oil and gas. These are incredible resources. Whatever energy resource you talk about, it, it's here, it's for our future. It's critically important to our country. Do we wanna go back to a 63% reliance on foreign nations for our, for our oil and gas resources? We've become the largest oil producing, oil and gas producing country in the world. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of people that just don't like that apparently. They don't like jobs, they don't like economic and, and, and you know, security for our nation. So we've got a fight and, uh, you know, folks like Congressman Armstrong are, are, you know, taking the fight to Washington, but as a producing state, whether it's agriculture, energy, or, or the jobs uh, or your schools, uh, we have to stand up and, and do this right, but yet fight for our ability to produce these critical needs for the nation. 
So, Carson Armstrong, we're going to give you the last word before we do. Um, Charlie, and really for all of us here, Scott says, hey, tapping into the rare earth elements in North Dakota lignite reserve should be a priority. Hashtag coal strong. I have one, one quick question, Charlie, just because I don't understand it as well as you do. From the rare earth elements perspective, are you talking about creating rare earth elements for the F-35, for cell phones, for electronics, or what exactly would they be doing? Everything. You're spot on. We, we need the rare earth elements for almost everything. Certainly from uh, national security, they're one of the most critical things. So to rely on another country for those uh, to create the submarines and the, the fighter jets, uh, we need those. And we have them here. Um, wow. We can produce them here and we can produce them in an environmentally friendly way, which we have no idea how they're being produced or uh, we can guess at how they're being produced other places. It's just, it's incredible what North Dakota is doing. So with that being said, Congressman Armstrong, I'm going to give you the last word. Anything you want to add or share, sir? Yeah, I have two basic jobs when I'm out here in DC. <laughs> it's not to explain to people why what we do in North Dakota is important in North Dakota. It's to explain to people why what we do in North Dakota is important to them. And it is because we produce the world's food. We produce the world's energy. And all of those things are going to continue. They're going to continue to utilize the products we produce in North Dakota. Well, wouldn't they rather get them from the greatest state and the greatest country of the world as opposed to our strategic allies? And then the second thing is basically keep the federal government the hell out of the way. Uh, that is just always the answer. We have learned, I, I think our, our, our adversaries on the environmental left have recognized that producing states have too much control over production. We want to keep it that way, particularly in the oil and gas industry where the new fight is, is transportation. And that's because we are the geographic center in North America and we have to get our products to market. So we'll take those fight pipeline fights to Montana, we'll take them to Virginia, we'll take them to Western Minnesota, and we'll, we want access to the ports in Washington, we want access to the ports in the Gulf of Mexico, and we're gonna continue to have that fight because we need to be able to get our products to market, we need to be able to get permits so we can get our infrastructure in the ground quicker, and I will have that fight every day because I just wanna, as I said, just let us rip and let us do do what we do. We'll take care of the economy. We'll take care of the environment, just like North Dakotans do what they do best, and that's feed and fuel the world. So, Congressman, one last question for you, sir. I say this somewhat in jest and somewhat seriously, but what what can we, meaning all of us here watching across the this great country, do to help you communicate that effectively? And here's the example I want to give is, have you ever tried to have that conversation? I'm going to use two people as an example, but I, I can't imagine what it's like, like with AOC or Speaker Pelosi. And what, what's their response when you break down, hey, this is why this matters to this country and to the people in it? Well, I think there's different sides to that. One, I, I, I mean, I served on a committee with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. I actually get along fairly well. But she's not who I want to have the conversation with. It's Lizzie Fletcher who represents a, a suburb in, in Houston. And it's reasonable Democrats on the other side of the aisle. We have to give them courage so they're not more scared of four Twitter accounts than doing what's actually good for the country. And I do think we need to recognize that. You know, we talk about the ports to plane alliance, but you go from North Dakota to the Gulf of Mexico and you don't run into a democratic district till you get to a suburb of Houston. So we have to continue to tell this story in a way that they that we can get people to understand this isn't just important for our way of life, it's important for their way of life. And the reality is, is we are still gonna be burning coal and we're going to be burning oil. So they should let us do it because we do it better, cleaner and more efficiently than anybody else in the world. So how can we help you? 
you continue to do this. I, I mean, I do it. Uh, Ron knows this. I go on. I mean, it's one thing to do these calls here, and I'm glad we can educate as many people. But I try and go on as many different places nationally as possible because we don't. We don't. We're not just talking to North Dakotans, but anybody who's listening. If you have family and friends in urban areas, and you're going to Thanksgiving, and you're going to have one of those rowdy political fights that often happen with with families at those types of things, make this part of the conversation. But don't, don't be, I mean, North Dakota is not a sleepy little flyover state. We are an absolute economic powerhouse. But what we produce here, I mean, we need to, we need to be able to take this argument there as why it's important in New York City, why it's important to Seattle, Washington, not just why it's important to Williston or Fargo or Bismarck, but why what we do here is important for the economic security, energy, independence, and, you know, military security of this country. We do all of those things well. Guys, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for serving our great state. And I will say the globe. And with the way Congressman Armstrong framed that, um, Charlie and I were visiting just before the show. And Charlie, I just want you to share with everybody why you are doing today what you're doing and what you told me. And I think it speaks volumes to what Congressman Armstrong just said. Yeah, thanks, Chris. As you mentioned, uh, uh, I'm from the National Guard. I deployed to Iraq in 2003. I got back in February of 2005. Uh, my job was to find and destroy IEDs. But when I came back, I really knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew that at that point, I wanted to develop the energy technologies in the United States here in North Dakota so that we could, uh, so that I didn't have to see my kids, which I didn't have at the time, or my grandkids, which I don't have yet, uh, go halfway around the world to fight for our energy security. So we can develop the technologies here, do it environmentally friendly, uh, sustainably, drive our economy, and then transfer that technology around the world so that the, the entire planet is better. And that's why I do what I do and the people at the EERC are, are leading the charge in developing those technologies. I mean, can we, can we just put that everywhere on the planet right now that you've gone from, hey, trying to get rid of these IEDs across the, you know, the world to now saying, look, let's do it here to protect our citizens and bring our troops home. So guys, I wanna be respectful of your time. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for doing this. I really, really appreciate the time and the insight. I hope we can do it again. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. All right. Thank, Thank you, you very much, gentlemen. Have a great day. I know.